Article 128 of the Labor Code, Visitorial and Enforcement Power. Letter A, the Secretary of Labor or his duly authorized representatives, including labor regulation officers, shall have access to employers' records and premises at any time of the day or night whenever work is being undertaken therein, and the right to copy therefrom to question any employee and investigate any fact, condition, or matter which may be necessary to determine violations or which may aid in the enforcement of this code and of any labor law, wage order, or rules and regulations issued pursuant thereto. Letter B, notwithstanding the provisions of Article 129 and 217 of this code, to the contrary, and in cases where the relationship of employer-employee still exists, the Secretary of Labor and Employment or his duly authorized representatives shall have the power to issue compliance or orders to give effect to the labor standards provisions of this code and other labor legislation based on the findings of labor employment and enforcement officers or industrial safety engineers made in the course of inspection. The secretary or his duly authorized representative shall issue writs of execution to the appropriate authority for the enforcement of their orders except in cases where the employer contests the finding of the labor employment and enforcement officer and raises issues supported by documentary proofs which were not considered in the course of inspection, as amended by RA number 7730, June 2, 1994. An order issued by the duly authorized representative of the Secretary of Labor and Employment under this article may be appealed to the latter. In case said order involves a monetary award, an appeal by the employer may be perfected only upon the posting of a cash or surety bond issued by a reputable bonding company duly accredited by the Secretary of Labor and Employment in the amount equivalent to the monetary award in the order appealed from. Letter C. The Secretary of Labor may likewise order stoppage of work or suspension of operations of any unit or department of an establishment when noncompliance with the law or implementing rules and regulations poses grave and imminent danger to the health and safety of workers in the workplace. Within 24 hours, a hearing shall be conducted to determine whether an order for the stoppage of work or suspension of operations shall be lifted or not. In case the violation is attributable to the fault of the employer, he shall pay the employees concerned their salaries or wages during the period of such stoppage of work or suspension of operation. Letter D. It shall be unlawful for any person or entity to obstruct, impede, delay, or otherwise render ineffective the orders of the Secretary of Labor or his duly authorized representatives issued pursuant to the authority granted under this article, and no inferior court or entity shall issue temporary or permanent injunction or restraining order or otherwise assume jurisdiction over any case involving the enforcement orders issued in accordance with this article. Letter E. Any government employee found guilty of violation of or abuse of authority under this article shall, after appropriate administrative investigation, be subject to summary dismissal from the service. Letter F. The Secretary of Labor may, by appropriate regulations, require employers to keep and maintain such employment records as may be necessary in aid of his visitorial and enforcement powers under this code. Number 1. Regional Administration and Enforcement of Labor Laws Provisions for law enforcement are necessary ingredients of lawmaking. 
government instrumentalities are needed and should be held responsible for attaining the objectives of the law. In the field of labor, the Department of Labor and Employment is the primary policy, programming, coordinating, and administrative entity of the government. It is the primary responsibility for, number one, the promotion of gainful employment opportunities and optimization of the development and utilization of the country's resources. Number two, the advancement of workers' welfare by providing for just and humane working conditions and terms of employment. Number three, the maintenance of industrial peace by promoting harmonious, equitable, and stable employment relations that assure equal protection for the rights of all concerned parties. To carry out these responsibilities, the department is authorized to operate and maintain regional offices, including district offices and provincial extension units, in each of the country's administrative regions. These offices serve as the operational arms, the frontline action offices, of the department, this role is described in specific terms in Article 128 and 129. At the regional level, five regional offices enforce the labor laws, namely, number one, the Dole Regional Office, headed by a regional director including five divisions, namely, letter A, Administrative Division, letter B, Labor Standards Enforcement Division, letter C, Industrial Relations Division, letter D, Workers Amelioration, Amelioration and Welfare Division, Letter E, Employment Promotion Division. Number two, TESDA or Technical Education and Skills Development Authority. Number three, Regional Arbitration Branch, RAB, of the NLRC, which handles compulsory arbitration cases affecting labor and management aside from enforcing decisions, awards, or orders of the NLRC. Number four, NCMB, National Conciliation and Mediation Board, which has absorbed the conciliation, mediation, and voluntary arbitration functions of the Bureau of Labor Relations. Number five, RTWPB, Regional Tripartite Wage and Productivity Board, Wage Board for short, which determines minimum wage applicable in the region and issues wage orders subject to guidelines from the National Wages and Productivity Commission. In addition, special labor-related laws are administered or enforced by the concerned agencies such as the SSS, GSIS, or Field Health Regional Offices. Number two, the Enforcement Framework, DO number 5704. The administration and enforcement responsibility of DOLE suffers severely from a shortage of labor inspectors to remedy this problem partly and to build a culture of compliance among employers based on voluntariness instead of compulsion. The DOLA issued DO number 5704, also called the Labor Standards Enforcement Framework or LSEF. The framework comprises three approaches, number one, self-assessment, number two, inspection, and number three, advisory service. Self-assessment is a voluntary compliance mode applicable to and encouraged in establishments with at least 200 workers and regardless of number of workers to unionize firms with CBAs. The self-assessment is guided by a checklist that Dollar Regional Office provides in the first quarter of every year. Within a month after receiving the checklist, a committee composed of employer and employee representatives shall accomplish the checklist and submit it to the Dollar in five days. The second mode inspection is undertaken by Dollar inspectors in workplaces with 10 to 199 workers given inspection priority are workers that are subjects of complaints or where accidents and illnesses are imminent or work hazards exist. Also in priority list are construction sites and places where women and children work.
The third enforcement approach consists in providing advisory services to establishment with less than 10 workers and those registered as BMBEs, Barangay Micro Business Enterprises. These small businesses are given assistance to improve their productivity, thereby facilitating their eventual compliance with labor standards. Finally, under DO number 5704, the DOLA may delegate to local government units the conduct of technical safety inspection requiring under Article 165 of the Labor Code. Labor standards violations unearthed through self-assessment or inspection or related cases are to be disposed of in accordance with Article 128, 129, 162, and 165 of the Labor Code. Number 3. Scope of Visitorial Enforcement Power under Article 128. The visitorial and investigatory power under Article 128 a is broad enough to cover any fact condition or matter related to the enforcement not only of the labor code but of any labor law. Such power is likewise unlimited by the amount of monetary liability involved. The liability determined through appropriate proceedings may be enforced through an order or writ of execution regardless of the amount involved according to Article 128, Paragraph B as amended by RA Number 7730. Pursuant to RA number 7730, the jurisdictional limitations imposed by Article 129 on the visitorial and enforcement power of the regional office under Article 128 of the Labor Code have been repealed. The phrase notwithstanding the provisions of Article 129 and 217 of the Labor Code to the contrary erases all doubts as to the amendatory nature of RA number 7730. The amendment in effect overturned the rulings to the Aboitis and Servandos cases insofar as the restrictive effect of Article 129 on the use of the power under Article 128 is concerned. The Secretary of Labor and Employment or his duly authorized representative in the exercise of their visitorial and enforcement powers are now authorized to issue compliance orders to give effect to the labor standards provisions of this code and other labor legislation based on the findings of labor employment and enforcement officers or industrial safety engineers made in the course of inspection. Any restriction with respect to the jurisdictional amount of 5,000 pesos provided under Article 129 and Article 2117 of the code. Number 4. Bombo Radio NLRC not dole should determine existence of employer-employee relationship. In the Sirenio case above, the court itself acknowledges that the visitorial enforcement power of the regional director has been freed by RA number 7730 from the jurisdictional limitations imposed by Article 129 and 217. This is the effect of the phrase notwithstanding the provisions of Article 129 and 217. Unmistakably, the intention of RA number 7730 is to broaden the extent and heighten the effectiveness of the enforcement power of the regional director, he being the government's regional representative, to give effect to the labor standard provisions of the labor code and other labor legislation. But while RA number 7730 frees the regional director from jurisdictional factors, a recent court decision handcuffs him against Again, as it says that determining the existence of employer-employee relationship should be comprehensive and intensive and therefore better left to the specialized quasi-judicial body that is the NLRC. In short, the NLRC's labor arbiter, not the dollar regional director, is the proper competent authority to say whether one is an employee or not. This is a simple question. The court says 
prefatorily in the People Broadcasting Bombo Radio case and yet in expressing preference for the labor arbiter over the regional director, the decision averts that the intricacies and implications of an employer-employee relationship demand that the level of scrutiny should be far above the cursory and the mechanical. The ratio of the decision hinges on DOLE implementing rules that were released in December 1987, about seven years before the expansionary amendment by RA Number no. 7730 in June 1994. The piercing dissenting opinion by Justice Brion points out that the majority decision cites implementing rules which cannot now be cited because they had been overtaken by statutory amendment. The majority decision in Bomboraja says that the employer-employee relationship is a matter fraught with questions of fact and law, which is best resolved by the quasi-judicial body, which is the NLRC rather than an administrative official of the executive branch. This statement is in paragraph 17 of the decision. In the same paragraph, it further says, The existence of an employer-employee relationship is a matter which is not easily determinable from an ordinary inspection necessarily so because the elements of such relationship are not verifiable from a mere ocular inspection. But the decision drifts in paragraph 29 when it says, Prima facie determination of employer-employee relationship can be done by the labor inspector by looking at the records of the petitioner alleged employer. The labor inspector could have exerted a bit more effort and look into petitioner's payroll, for example, or its role of employees or interviewed other employees in the premises. In other words, paragraph 17 asserts that the regional director, definitely a higher official than the inspector, is not the right person to judge existence of employer-employee relationship because it often becomes a battle of evidence and yet paragraph 29 wants a labor inspector to do a frame of determination of the same issue through routine inspection. 4.1 Later Decision Dole I Director Has Quasi-Judicial Power The assertion in Bombo Radio that Article 128 does not vest quasi-judicial power does not seem to accord with the more recent pronouncement in Jethro Intelligence and Security Corporation and your quote Philippine versus Honorable Secretary of Labor and Employment et al., this decision recognizes quasi-judicial power of the Secretary of Labor or the Regional Director, the Court of Europe, the unanimous decisions of the Labor Arbiter, the NLRC, and the Court of Appeals to hold the security agency and its client principal jointly and solidarily liable for monetary liabilities, wage differentials, holiday pay, 13-month pay, etc. to the complainant security guards, the labor standards violations were verified through an inspection and cost the issuance of a writ of execution and garnishment by the Dollar Regional Director. Jethro, the security agency and admittedly the employer of the complainant guards, assailed the Regional Director's writ of execution and garnishment. But the High Court upheld the Director's issuance of the writs by stressing that the Director exercises quasi-judicial power. It bears emphasis that the sole SOLE under Article 106 of the Labor Code as amended exercises quasi-judicial power at least to the extent necessary to determine violations of labor standards provisions of the Code and other labor legislation. He or she of the region or the regional directors can issue compliance orders and writs of execution for the enforcement thereof. The significance of and binding effect of the compliance orders of the Dole Secretary is enunciated in Article 128 of the Labor Code as amended 
Moreover, by declaring in Bombo Radio that determination of employer-employee relationship is best resolved by the quasi-judicial body, which is the NLRC, the court has probably forgotten what it said in Republic of the Philippines versus Asiapro Cooperative. In this case, where employer-employee relationship is involved in connection with registration with the SSS, the court upheld the jurisdiction of the Social Security Commission to hear and resolve the question. Unequivocably, the court said, the NLRC does not have exclusive jurisdiction over a question of existence of employer-employee relationship. The SSC may inquire into the presence or absence of an employer-employee relationship as an incident to the issue of compulsory SSS coverage. If determining the existence of employment relationship is incidental to the law implementation responsibility of the SSC, it is not likewise incidental to the law enforcement responsibility of the Secretary of Labor. The Bombo Radio ruling debilitates the administrative machinery of labor dispute settlement. Does this accord with the objective of the law to dispense expeditious and inexpensive labor justice? Number 5. Work relationships still existing. For the regional director to exercise the enforcement power under Article 128, Paragraph B, the work relationship between the complaining workers and the alleged employer must be existing at the time the complaint formal or informal is presented. In one case, the regional director responding to a complaint of some workers authorized the conduct of inspection in the establishment and subsequently issued an order requiring payment of statutory benefits to the workers. The employer impugned the RD's jurisdiction by presenting release and quit claims form allegedly signed by the workers. The regional director and on appeal, the Undersecretary of Labor and the Court of Appeals dismissed the employer's objection. The High Court agreed that photocopies of documents entitled Release and Quit Claims are unreliable and insufficient to divest the regional director of the jurisdiction to conduct a complaint inspection, especially considering the fact that the complaining workers continue working for the employer up to more than one week after the inspection. The conclusion of the regional director and later the Undersecretary of Labor and the Court of Appeals that such documents are unreliable deserves respect from the Supreme Court. Where one of several complainants alleges illegal dismissal, his allegation deprives the regional director of jurisdiction as the dismissal complaint will fall under the labor arbiter's jurisdiction according to Article 217. But the regional director retains jurisdiction over his other complaints and those of the other complainants about underpayment of wages and other violations of labor laws, regardless of amount involved under Article 128, Paragraph B. Number 6. Subjects of Enforcement The regional director in cases where employer-employee relationship still exists has the power to order and administer after due notice and hearing compliance with the labor standards provisions of the labor code and other legislation. An enforcement order is normally based on the findings of the labor regulation officers or industrial safety engineers made in the course of inspection. The director may also issue writs of execution to the appropriate authority for the enforcement of his orders in line with the provisions of Article 128 in relation to Article 289 and 290 of the Labor Code. However, in those cases where the employer contests the findings of the labor standards and welfare officers and raises issues which cannot be resolved without considering evidentiary matters that are not verifiable in the normal course of inspection. 
The regional director must endorse the case to the appropriate arbitration branch labor arbiter of the NLRC for adjudication. The visitorial enforcement power is thorough and piercing. It extends even to issue not formally included in the complaint. The Supreme Court has upheld the visitorial power of the regional director to enforce a labor standards law even if the compliance issue is not raised in the complaint. The court said, We also do not agree with the petitioner's allegation that it was improper for the respondent regional director to order in the questioned order dated October 13, 1988, compliance with PD 1678, which mandated certain emergency allowance, as the issue on the said decree was never raised by private respondent in its complaint filed before the regional director while it may be true that PD 1678 is not one of the laws where non-compliance therewith was complained of, still the regional director correctly acted in ordering petitioner to comply therewith as he, regional director, has such power under his visitorial and, and enforcement authority provided under Article 128, Paragraph A of the Labor Code. However, a regional director is plainly without the authority to declare an order or law unconstitutional, and his duty is merely to enforce the law which stands valid, unless otherwise declared by the tribunal, the Supreme Court, to be unconstitutional. On our part, we, the Supreme Court, hereby declare the assailed wage orders as constitutional, there being no provision of the 1973 Constitution and the 1987 Constitution or even both the Freedom Constitution and the 1987 Constitution violated by said wage orders, which orders are without doubt for the benefit of labor. 6.1. Unless agreed otherwise, statutory benefits are apart from contractual benefits. Mekawayan College versus Drilon. Facts of the Case. On January 16, 1987, the Board of Trustees of Mekawayan College recognized the school's faculty and personnel association as the employees' union. Prior to the recognition, the college and the union had entered into a collective bargaining agreement which provided for a salary scale. During the lifetime of the collective bargaining agreement, several wage orders were issued. The union admitted that its members were paid all the increases in pay mandated by law. However, the union president discovered the Article 4 of the CBA regarding the new salary scale had not been implemented. The union filed a notice of strike on the ground of unfair labor practice. The regional director found that the collective bargaining agreement had not been complied with and therefore directed the college to comply with the salary scale provision of the collective bargaining agreement. The Secretary of Labor agreed with the director, the college maintained that an agreement on a salary scale should be distinguished from an agreement on a salary increase. It argued that an agreement on a salary scale should not be considered as an addition to the salary increase imposed by law and vice versa. Ruling, the Supreme Court affirmed the Labor Secretary's decision. A collective bargaining agreement is a contractual obligation. It is distinct from an obligation imposed by law. The term and conditions of a collective bargaining agreement constitutes the law between the parties. Beneficiaries thereof are therefore by right entitled to the fulfillment of the obligation prescribed therein. Consequently, to deny binding force to the collective bargaining agreement would place a premium on a refusal by a party thereto to comply with the terms of the agreement. Such refusal would constitute an unfair labor practice. Compliance with the collective bargaining agreement is mandated by the express policy to give protection to labor.
unless otherwise provided by law, said policy should be given paramount consideration. Since the college has failed to point to any provision of law or even of the collective bargaining agreement itself to the effect that benefits provided by the former encompass laws provided by the latter, benefits derived from either the law or a contract should be treated as distinct and separate from each other. The contention of the college that an agreement on a salary scale should not be considered as an additional to the salary increase imposed by law and vice versa is fallacious. Increments to the laborers' financial gratification, be they in the form of salary increases or changes in the salary scale, are aimed at one thing, improvement of the economic predicament of the laborers. As such, they should be viewed in the light of the state's avowed policy to protect labor. Thus, having entered into an agreement with its employees, an employer may not be allowed to renege on its obligations under a collective bargaining agreement should at the same time the law grant the employees the same or better terms and conditions of employment. Employee benefits derived from law are exclusive of benefits arrived at through negotiation and agreement unless otherwise provided by the agreement itself or by law. As the key to the interpretation of contracts, including collective bargaining agreements, is the intention of the parties, we examined the record and found that the collective bargaining agreement herein involved was entered into by the parties to improve the plight of the teacher's salary or rate per period by drafting a salary scale based on the length of service of the teachers and eventually came up with Article 4 of the collective bargaining agreement. Clearly, the parties wanted to attain one goal, increase the salaries of the teachers on the basis of their length of service. Hence, it is immaterial that the means by which the goal is achieved is through the alteration of the salary scale. 6.2. Teacher share and tuition fee increase. Also within the visitorial enforcement power of the DOLA is the compliance with the law requiring a school to give the teachers a share in tuition fee increases. But what if the school is losing? Does this obligation exist if there was tuition fee increase but no incremental proceeds because of decreased enrollment or increased bad debts? The answer is given in sympathetic lines by Justice later just Chief Justice Artemio V. Panganiban. Facts. Um, the petition asked the Supreme Court to settle once and for all the meaning of incremental proceeds from tuition fee increase. This is the case of St. Joseph Colleges versus St. Joseph Colleges Workers Association. Specifically, petitioner submits the question of whether or not there are incremental proceeds from a tuition fee increase to, de- to be distributed as mandated by Republic Act Number no. 6728 when a school increases tuition fees for a succeeding school year but actually ends up with a lower income than the previous school year because some of its students can no longer afford the higher tuition and are forced to drop out or transfer to another school, public or private, which charges a lower tuition fee they can afford. Petitioner submits that in this situation, though there is a tuition fee increase, there is no incremental proceeds that is derived from the tuition fee increase and therefore, there is nothing to distribute to the employees. Ruling in the discord sympathizes with the dilemma of petitioner and other educational institutions similarly situated. In their desire to raise teacher compensation and to expand school facilities, they resort to sometimes painful increase in tuition fees only to find out later that despite their good intentions, 
their gross revenue actually decreased because of the lesser number of enrollees who can afford the increases. However, the court cannot agree with their position on the present legal issue because of the following reasons. First, the judiciary merely applies what the law is, not what it should be. Section 5, Paragraph 2 of Republic Act 6728 allows a tuition fee increase only under the condition that at least 70% of the increase shall be disbursed as salaries, wages, allowances, and other benefits for teaching and non-teaching personnel. The law imposes this requirement without exception or qualification. Number 2. Tuition fees under subparagraph C may be increased on the condition that 70% of the tuition fee increases shall go to the payment of salaries, wages, allowances, and other benefits of teaching and non-teaching personnel. At least 20% shall go to the improvement or modernization of buildings, equipment, libraries, laboratories, gymnasia, and similar facilities, and to the payment of other costs of operation for this purpose, schools shall maintain a separate record of accounts for all assistance received from the government, any tuition fee increase, and the detailed disposition and use thereof, which record shall be made available for periodic inspection. It is not the province of the judiciary to look into the wisdom of the law, nor to question the policies adopted by the legislative branch, nor is it the business of this tribunal to remedy every unjust situation that may arise from the application of a particular law. It is for the legislature to enact remedial legislation if that would be necessary in the premises. Secondly, the question of whether to increase tuition fees within the parameters of the law lies within the discretion and power of the school, not the personnel thereof. When such a decision is made, it is assumed that the school has undertaken a serious and thorough study of the probable consequences. In this sense, the action on whether to raise these fees becomes an entrepreneurial risk that the owner assumes. In case such action turns out to be unwise or inconvenient, its result should be the primary responsibility of the risk taker. Third, apart from making theoretical calculations, petitioner has not provided the court with hard evidence on the actual loss it has incurred as a result of the tuition fee increase. Note that a mere decrease in the gross income of a corporation does not necessarily and automatically translate into a negative bottom line. Decreased income may also mean decreased expenses. Fourth, if the law is indeed disadvantageous to the educational system and grossly harmful to private schools, the remedy lies not in this court but in Congress, which controls not only issues of policy but also the purse strings of government. We are confident that given the opportunity to weigh the contentious sides of this question, Congress will find a wise answer. 6.3 CBA salary increase charged to the 70% share. In a case involving implementation of salary increases granted in the CBA in a school, there were two kinds of salary increases. Number one, the CBA negotiated increase takes from the university fund. And number two, the increase resulting from the incremental proceeds IP integration. The latter kind of pay increase was taken from the 70% share of the school personnel from the incremental proceeds. This is the union objected to. It maintained that the 70% share in the incremental proceeds of the tuition fee increase should not be the source of a pay increase mandated in the CBA of the parties. In other words, the 70% share should be kept intact apart and separate from the CBA increase. The court decided that the charging of the integrated IP against the 70% share is not violative of the CBA 
The court said the integrated IP provided in the CBAs of the teaching and the non-teaching staff is actually the share of the employees in the 70% of the IP that is incorporated into their salaries as a result of the negotiation between the university and its personnel. The purpose of the integration is to regularize the receipt by the personnel of the benefits arising from the increase in the school's tuition fees. But it does not change the nature of the benefit as IP. There is no basis, therefore, for our petitioner's objection to the sourcing of the integrated IP from the 70% of the tuition fee increase. Number 7. Disposition of Labor Standard Cases A labor standard case is processed administratively under Article 128 and 129 of the Labor Code as amended. Labor standards refer to the minimum requirements prescribed by existing laws, rules, and regulations relating to wages, hours of work, cost of living allowance, and other monetary and welfare benefits, including occupational safety and health standards under the present rules, a regional director exercises both visitorial and enforcement power over labor standard cases and is therefore empowered to adjudicate money claims, provided there still exists an employer-employee relationship and the findings of the regional office is not contested by the employer concerned. Pursuant to the provisions of Article 5 in relation to Article 128b, of the Labor Code, the Secretary of Labor and Employment issued on September 16, 1987, the rules on the disposition of labor standards cases in the regional offices to govern the enforcement of labor standards at the regional level. After the issuance of those rules, Article 128B was amended by Republic Act Number no. 7730 on June 2, 1994, whose provisions are now reflected in the present Article 128. 7.1 Inspection Report Where a reported violation of labor standards is assigned to LSWO for inspection, the latter shall conduct the necessary investigation and submit a report thereon to the, regu to the regional director through the Chief of the Labor Standards Enforcement Division or LSED within 24 hours after the investigation or within a reasonable period as may be determined by the regional director. The report shall specify the violations discovered, if any, together with his recommendations and computation of the amount due each worker. 7.2. Coverage of complaint inspection. A complaint inspection shall not be limited to the specific allegations or violations raised by the complainant's workers, but shall be a thorough inquiry into and verification of the compliance by employer with existing labor standards and shall co cover all workers similarly situated. 7.3 Restitution Where the employer has agreed to make the necessary restitution of violations discovered in the course of inspection, such restitution may be effected at the plant level within five calendar days from receipt of the inspection results by the employer or his authorized representative. Plant level restitution may be effected for money claims not exceeding 50,000 pesos, a report of the restitution shall be immediately submitted to the regional director for verification and confirmation. In case the, region, the regional director finds that the restitution affected at the plant level are not in order, he may direct the LSED chief to check on the correctness of the restitution report. The first sentence of this paragraph is rendered obsolete by RA number 7730 as explained above. Restitutions in excess of the aforementioned amount shall be effected at the regional office or at the work site subject to the prior approval of the regional director. 7.4. 
compromise agreement should the parties arrive at an agreement as to the whole or part of the dispute said agreement shall be reduced in writing and signed by the parties in the presence of the regional director or his duly authorized representative a settlement that provides for an amount of money far below the sum legally due violates public policy such settlement although reached with the participation of the regional director may be appealed and reversed by the Secretary of Labor. Hearing Where no proof of compliance is submitted by the employer after seven calendar days from receipt of the inspection results, the regional director shall summon the employer and the complainants to a summary investigation. In regular routine inspection cases, however, such investigation shall be conducted where no complete field investigation can be made for reasons attributable to the fault of the employer or his representatives, such as those but not limited to instances when the field inspectors are denied access to the premises employment records or workers of the employer. 7.6. Complaint Inspection under Article 128, Illustrative Case, Coco Fed, Calamansig et al. v. Honorable Presenciano B. Trahano et al. Facts and inspection conducted by the Department in response the complaints filed by two employees revealed that Coco Fed was guilty of underpayment of wages, emergency cost of living allowance, E. cola, and 13-month pay. A motion of inspection results was issued requiring Coco Fed to effect restitution or correction within five days from notice. Summary investigation were conducted. Coco Fed alleged that complainants worked for less than eight hours, a minimum of four, and a maximum of six and that therefore COCOFED was justified in paying an amount less than the statutory minimum wage. The regional director issued a compliance order ruling on the manifestation made by the respondent that workers were paid by results and the former has complied with the minimum wage. We have noticed in the payrolls for the period January 1985 to February 1988 submitted by the former during summer investigation that said workers were not paid all the time on a piece rate basis during paydays for three years. Further, they showed that the latter were paid on a weekly basis through a weekly payroll prepared indicating therein the workers paid by results, the daily paid workers, and the monthly paid worker. It is noteworthy to mention that the respondent has no permanent mode of payment to all its workers as evidenced by the payrolls and other documents submitted during the hearing. This is contradictory to their allegations that they are paying their workers on a peace rate basis since 1985. Moreover, said documents confirm the manifestation by the Council of the complainants that the workers paid on a daily and monthly basis are receiving below the statutory minimum wage. Wherefore, premises considered, Respondent Coco Fed Calamansig and or manager with address at Calamansig Sultan Kudarat is ordered to pay the 21 workers their entitlements for underpayment of wages, underpayment of E. cola, an underpayment of 13-month pay, COCOFED appealed to the Secretary of Labor and Employment who denied the appeal and ruled that on the basis of the payroll submitted by the respondent, we find that the regional director was correct in ruling that the complainants are daily paid workers. While respondent claims that in 1985, these workers were paid on peace rate basis, still the payrolls show that from March 1985 to February 1989, the complainants were paid on a daily basis granting that these workers were indeed converted to peace rate workers, said conversion is an outright violation of the labor code. An employer cannot unilaterally decrease the salary being given to the employees pursuant to Article 100 of the labor code. What it has voluntarily given cannot be unilaterally withdrawn. 
besides the implementing rules are explicit to the effect that nothing therein shall justify an employer from withdrawing or reducing benefits or supplements provided in existing individual or collective agreement or employer practice or policy. Fed filed a petition with the Supreme Court alleging that public respondents committed grave abuse of discretion, number one, in not categorizing it as an establishment with less than 30 employees and with a paid up capital of 500,000 or less, and number two, in not finding that complainants are peace rate workers or paid by results, ruling, we find no grave abuse of discretion on the part of public respondents. Petitioner would have us overturn the factual finding of public respondents that its employer are daily paid workers. This we are unable to do for the payroll submitted by it supported the latter's position. Findings of administrative agencies which have acquired expertise because their jurisdiction is confirmed to specific matters are generally accorded not only respect but even finality. Number 8. Suspension of Operations Paragraph C of this article authorizes the Secretary of Labor to suspend the operations of an establishment whose non-compliance with law or regulations possess grave and imminent danger to workers. Enforcement orders under this article are beyond injunctive power of an inferior court. Number 9. Appeal An order issued under this article is appealable to the DOLA Secretary, the Administrative Superior of the Regional Director, the decision of the secretary becomes final and executor after 10 calendar days from receipt of the records of the case. A motion for reconsideration of the secretary's decision has to be filed as a precondition for any further or subsequent remedy. If the motion is denied, a special, a special civil action for certiorari under Rule 65 of the 1997 Rules of Civil Procedure may be filed with the Court of Appeals within 60 days from receipt of the denial of the motion. Following the rationale of St. Martin ruling, Decisions of the Secretary of Labor, such as those under Article 128, 239, 259, and 263, may be elevated initially to the Court of Appeals through certiorari. The validity of quit claims may be assailed in an appeal to the Labor Secretary despite the fact that they were signed voluntarily and under the supervision of the Regional Director. If the sum agreed, if the sum agreed upon, for instance, is only about one-half of what is legally due, the settlement contradicts public policy and can be voided. The Supreme Court said, A quit claim is said to be invalid and against public policy. Number one, where there is a clear proof that the waiver was wangled from an unsuspecting or gullible person. Or number two, where the terms of settlement are unconscionable on their face. In such cases, the law will step in to annul the questionable transaction. The second exception obtains in the case at war, as succinctly put by the Secretary of Labor, as to the claim that this office failed to show why the quit claims and releases were unconscionable despite the fact that it was executed before the Dolek Car Regional Office, the same is totally misplaced. Clear from the records is that, except for the quit claim signed by complainant Felix Padilla, the monetary considerations indicated in the 22 quit claims and releases were way below the total claims of each complainant's. The presence and assistance of the representatives of the Dole Car Regional Office in the execution and consummation of the scene is of no moment. This office, pursuant to its administrative supervision and control over the regional offices and the power to review actions and decisions of her subordinates, can exercise corrective measures where the circumstances warrant and to prevent injustice. 9.1 Bond under Rule 10A of DO No. 7A Series of 1995 
The appeal may be perfected only upon the posting of a cash or shorty bond equivalent to the monetary award. The rule does not allow the dollar secretary, unlike the rules of the NLRC, to entertain a motion to reduce the amount of the bond. Thus, in a case where the award was more than 300000 but the employer posted only 1000 cash bond, the secretary dismissed the appeal and both the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court sustained the dismissal. 9.2. Who benefits from rectification? A rectification resulting from inspection findings under Article 128 is a regulatory action by DOLE. Even non-complaining employees will benefit from the rectification order. In the above Catholic vicariate, the case where the Labor Secretary's monetary award extended even to non-compliance uh, to the non-complainants, the court justifies the coverage by saying the doctrine in Maternity Children's Hospital versus Secretary of Labor is instructive. In said case, the award is extended to all employees of the establishment concerned, including those who did not sign the complaint. This court explained thus, the justification for the award to this group of employees who were not signatories to the complaint is that the visitorial and enforcement powers given to the Secretary of Labor is relevant to and exercisable over establishments, not over the individual members' employees, because what is sought to be achieved by its exercise is the observance of and are compliance by such firm establishment with the labor standards regulations. Necessarily, in case of an award resulting from a violation of labor legislation by such establishment, the entire member's employees should benefit therefrom. Number 10. Enforcement of Wage Order Under Republic Act Number 6727, June 9, 1989, otherwise known as the Wage Rationalization Act, and its implementing rules, the Department of Labor and Employment shall conduct inspections as often as possible or necessary within its manpower constraint of the payroll and other financial records kept by the company or business to determine whether the workers are paid the prescribed minimum wage rates and other benefits granted by law or any wage order. 10.1 Inspection of Unionized Companies In unionized companies, the dollar inspector shall always be accompanied by the president or any responsible officer of the recognized bargaining union or of any interested union in the conduct of the inspection. 10.2. Inspection of non-unionized companies In non-unionized companies, establishments, or businesses, the inspection should be carried out in the presence of a worker representing the workers in the said company. The worker's representative shall have the right to submit his own findings to the dole and to testify on the same if he cannot concur with the findings of the labor inspector. 10.3. Complaint for non-compliance with statutory wage increases. Complaints for non-compliance by employers with the wage increases prescribed under Republic Act No. 6727 shall be filed with the regional office of the DOLE having jurisdiction over the workplace and shall be the subject of enforcement proceedings under Article 128 and 129 of the Labor Code as amended. 10.4. Penalty for non-compliance. Double indemnity. The Wage Rationalization Law, RA No. 6727, approved on June 9, 1989, specifies the penalty for an employer's refusal or failure to comply with wage orders. The penalty was in the form of a fine. Convinced that the penalty was too light for a prevalent sin among employers, the legislature passed RA No. 8188, approved on June 11, 1996, to make the penalty heavier as amended Section 12 of RA number 6727 punishes the non-compliance with imprisonment and double indemnity. It states Section 12, 
any person, corporation, trust, firm, partnership, association, or entity which refuses or fails to pay any of the prescribed increases or adjustment in the wage rates made in accordance with this act shall be punished by a fine of not less than 25,000 pesos nor more than 100,000 pesos or imprisonment of not less than 2 years nor more than one, more than 4 years or both such fine and imprisonment at the discretion of the court provided that any person convicted under this act shall not be entitled to the benefits provided for under the probation law. The employer concerned shall be ordered to pay an amount equivalent to double the unpaid benefits owing to the employees, provided that payment of indemnity shall not absolve the employer from the criminal li liability impossible, imposable under this act. If the violation is committed by a corporation, trust, or firm, partnership, association, or any other entity, the penalty of imprisonment shall be imposed upon the entity's responsible officers, including but not limited to the president, vice president, ex chief executive officer, general manager, managing director, or partner. To implement the amending law, the Secretary of Labor and Employment issued Department Order Number 10, dated May 4, 1998, it defines double indemnity as the payment to a concerned employee of the prescribed increases or adjustments in the wage rate, which was not paid by an employer in an amount equivalent to twice the unpaid benefits owing to such employee. Unpaid benefits is explained as the prescribed wage rates which the employer failed to pay upon the effectivity of a wage order exclusive of other wage-related benefits. Unpaid benefits, as defined, serves as the principal basis for computing the double indemnity. For instance, if a wage order imposes a minimum wage increase of, say, 20 pesos a day, the employer who fails or refuses to comply with the order may be required to pay 40 pesos wage increase per day to the employee entitled thereto. The computation for double indemnity starts from the effectivity of the prescribed increases or adjustments as indicated in the wage order, the basis for the computation of double indemnity is limited to the unpaid benefits as already defined. Where there is partial compliance with the prescribed increase or adjustment, the basis for computing double indemnity is the balance of unpaid benefits reckoned from the effectivity of the wage order. 10.5 CBA Anniversary Wage Increases Compliance with Wage Order Section 8 of RA Number 6640 Invalid Cebu Oxygen and Acetylene Corporation Incorporated versus Drilon Facts of the case, Republic Act 6642, passed on December 40, 1987, increased by 10 pesos the statutory minimum daily wage rate of workers and employees in the private sector, whether agricultural or non-agricultural. The Secretary of Labor issued the pertinent rules implementing Republic Act No. 6640, Section 8, of which provides no wage increase shall be credited as compliance with the increase prescribed herein unless expressly provided under valid individual written collective agreements and provided further that such wage increase was granted in anticipation of the legislated wage increase under the Act. Such increases shall not include anniversary wage increase provided in collective bargaining agreements. Cebu Oxygen Corporation and the union of its rank-and-file employees entered into a collective bargaining agreement covering the years 1986 to 1988 under the CBA, the management gave salary increases as follows. The CBA contained a proviso that the pay increase shall be credited as payment to any mandated government wage adjustment or allowance increases which may be issued by way of legislation, decree, or presidential account counted from the above date.
to the next increase. The regional director ordered Cebu Oxygen Corporation to pay the deficiency of 200 pesos in the monthly salary and 231 in the 13-month pay of its employee for the period of stated. Cebu Oxygen protested the director's order saying that the anniversary wage increase under the CBA could be credited against the wage increase mandated by Republic Act No. 6640. It argued that the payment of the differentials constituted full compliance with Republic Act No. 6640. Issue whether the wage increase under the CBA can be credited as compliance with the statutory wage increase. Ruling Cebu Oxygen correctly contended that the salary increases granted by, its, by it pursuant to the existing CBA including anniversary wage increase should be considered in determining compliance with the wage increase manda mandated by Republic Act No. 6640. It therefore correctly credited its employees 62 pesos for the differential of 2 months increase and 31 pesos each for the differential in the 13-month pay after deducting the 200 pesos anniversary wage increase for 1987 under the collective bargaining agreement. Section 8 of the rule implementing Republic Act 6640 is declared null and void insofar as it excludes the anniversary wage increases negotiated under collective bargaining agreements from being credited to the wage increases provided for under Republic Act number 6640. 10.6 CBA increases and statutory increases intention of parties The intention of the parties whether or not to equate benefits under the collective bargaining agreement with those granted by law must prevail and be given effect. Thus, the employees are entitled to the full amount of both a wage increase under a collective bargaining agreement and an increase in living allowance prescribed by law during the period when both increases are concurrently effective for want of an agreement between the parties to treat the increase in living allowances applicable to the wage increase. The manifest will and intent of the parties to treat the legislated increases as equivalent pro tanto to those stipulated in their bargaining agreement must be respected and given effect. The court must ascertain and give effect to the intent projected by the parties to the collective bargaining agreement, that intent to be determined in the first instance by examining the words used by the parties in setting forth their agreement. The contemporaneous and subsequent conduct of the parties may be taken into account by a court which must interpret and apply a contract entered into by them. Stipulations of a contract must be read together with its other provisions and not in isolation from each other.